Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 13th, 2023, a very consequential day, perhaps, in world history. Fridays are usually days where things get wrapped up the end of the week. But of course, the reverse is true this week. We're all waiting for something to happen. Uh, thousands of people are fleeing northern Gaza, as there seems to be, at least according to most of the major media, New York Times, Wall Street German, uh, Wall Street, not German, Wall Street Journal, uh, imminent Israeli um, invasion. History is in the making. Um, and as the Financial Times reminds us, uh, we don't yet know where it's all going to end. In an odd way, we're living in the future, even if we're living in the past. We're making history, and none of us quite know how it's being made, although I suspect for many people, judging from social media, we already know the future, even if we don't, because it only confirms what we already think, particularly in our digital age. One person who's done a lot of thinking about the future and the past, and particularly in the digital context, is my guest today, Abby Smith-Rumsey. Uh, she is the chair at the Stanford Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences and the author uh, of a wonderfully titled book, Memory Edited, which is just out, uh, Taking Liberties with History. It's perfectly timed, and she is joining us from uh, her home uh, in Northern California. Uh, Abby, congratulations on the book. Do you agree with my sense that we're all waiting for the shoe to drop when it comes to what is about to unfold? Yes, I, I agree. Um, and people are lining up sometimes in a confused way with their where they're going to stand on it. But, you know, it puts me in mind, Andrew, of the massive buildup around Ukraine that went on for a long time. The Russian armies uh, uh, massing up on the border, even in Belarusia, and nobody knew when, what was going to happen or when or if anything was going to happen. But then when it did happen, it, it came as a huge shock, and people have been recovering from that shock, also asking the question, when is this going to end? And now we're asking, how is this going to end? So I think the, the current invasion or incursion or massive um, terrorist attack, whoever you want to call it, um, of, you know, in, in Israel and Gaza is simply the same thing, but a slightly different timing. We certainly don't know how it's going to end. And I've even heard speculation that the Israelis are massing on the border, but they really won't uh, move into Gaza. They're putting out, they've made this um, warning for, that everyone in a certain area needs to leave within 24 hours, but there's no way for them to leave. There's no exit for any of these people in Gaza, north or south, east or west. Mm, it's almost as if uh, Kafka could have written this. Uh, one country asks for a population to leave, but the population can't leave. And uh, it's Kafka in the digital age, of course, more and more pieces about who to trust, who not to trust. Misinformation in the digital age is not a news story, but it seems to have come to a kind of ominous, eerie, bloody crisis this week. 
tell me about this book. It's wonderfully titled, Abby, um, Memory Edited. Is this a self-edited memory or a memory edited by big tech or libraries or institutions, governments of some form or other? All of the above. Um, I, I, I want to make clear that personal memory, the way humans remember things, we can't remember everything. We always have to edit in information out, which is redundant or deemed useless at the time. So in order for the brain to work flawlessly and anticipate the world and what's going to happen for the sake of survival and reproduction, each creature, every mammal that has a brain sort of memorizes the world and operates from a little model of the world in their brain so that it allows them to pay attention to the things that don't fit into that model. And those are things that are usually threats, which imprint mighty, mightily um, on our emotions first and then possibly our rationality, often usually not. Um, but also I talk about collective memory and collective memory is something which binds a society together. But in times like this, it, it can become, um, people can seize the memory and use it against us. It can also tear us apart. And I argue in the book that many governments, regimes that want to control their population do so by controlling the things that they know, the things that they can remember and their sense of reality by pitching them a view of the future, which they cling to, and then edit the past in order to serve as a prelude to the future that they want. I think the, the thing that I see going on is it went on in Ireland. Um, it's going now on in the Middle East and very, most vividly in Ukraine. When people live through such traumatic experiences and they see such brutal um, murders and other crimes, they can only think about writing those things. They, can, they can't, it's not, they're not in a position to really forgive. They're, they're completely traumatized. And often when young people see what's going on and they are forced to grow up very quickly, they become just like the people, um, their parents and their grandparents who carry on this, um, these grudges, this, these collective memories of traumas that um, are never really forgotten. They live on and on. I think you can, you know, just talking about what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh, how quickly did the Armenians say this was also a familiar genocide, um, reminiscent of the Turkish genocide of the Armenians. And now I talk to my friends, who, many of whom are Jewish and have lost family in the Holocaust, and they immediately call this a genocide and um, talk about the intent to wipe out Jews. Um, and it's hard to see any other way. And it's hard to see how we're going to settle this, even get to negotiations, just as we can't really in Ukraine. You mentioned the G word, genocide, perhaps a word overused. Another word that I think tends to get overused in these situations is the F word, facts. Um, <laughs> as I said, in you know, people talking about the fact focus, misinformation, but Facts are facts and interpretations are interpretations, Abby. Should we be thinking factually about this thing? I, let's take the example of what, what's happened this week or this month or this century when it comes to the Middle East. Everyone can find facts to suit their own narratives, can't they? 
Yes, I mean, facts are a little, like, a little like the Bible. They sort of comprise everything. And you can spin any kind of narrative out of it. You can take any sequence of facts and line them up in a such a way that it supports the narrative that you want. Nonetheless, um, there are there are true facts and there are fake facts. Um, so I think we've gotten in America, I, I speak for at least my generation, um, we grew up observing how there were these fictional things um, that were going on in you know, the ideology of the Soviet Union. And we all automatically assumed that such things, the um, lies that are told to their population about what's going on, that could never happen in the United States because we have freedom of press, freedom of expression. And I, what's so shocking about the present moment in the U.S., is that we actually don't need a totalitarian, totalitarian government or an authoritarian government to impose a plot. In fact, there are many people who are just making up facts altogether and you know, um, believing in conspiracies because at least conspiracies make some kind of coherent sense out of facts that are confusing and distressing and traumatic. I mean, we tend to be great storytellers. We want to. Make I, sense I wonder of whether things. that occurs to me, Abby. The there are two sort of conventional, shall we say, narratives here. Although there's a bit of a pun there. On the one hand, we're told endlessly, or, or people come on my show endlessly, tell me that we're storytellers. And on the other hand, people come on the show and say, "Well, there are facts, and there are there's propaganda, and there is invention." But given that we're storytellers, what's wrong with making up facts? What, what, why does it offend so many people? Oh, well, I think it offends so many people because they have an idea about what's really at stake and is getting lost um, at this moment in particular. But when I say that people are storytellers, I'm, say, I'm saying something very trite, um, a very cliched, but, it's a, but my problem with that term nowadays is that people apply it to history Russian. Of course people want stories, but you know, literary critics have said that a, a great story is one with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and somehow, no matter what happens in the middle, the ending must begin, must at least harmonize with the beginning. Um, and so you'll see in traumatized um, communities, and I'm overusing that term, but let's say uh, societies that have gone through great changes, which have hurt them very much and they did not anticipate, or they were caught by surprise, have looked backwards and they try to determine exactly where they went wrong, what was not true that they thought was true, but they still end up framing um, facts in a way that makes sense in, in a shape that is not the way history actually unfolds and our lives don't really unfold. Um, I think that, I think that, I, I think back to fiction, for example, or any kind of art where there is a way to take, to ignore facts or be highly selective of facts and distort them in order to tell a very deep truth. But that kind of, um, use of facts or shading of facts or forgetting facts doesn't really work when we're trying to take into account what the past has truly been. I, I'm not gonna argue that everybody cares about the past as much as historians do, but I think when we're very confused about who we are in the present 
and we look back to find out where where we came from and who we are, facts become critically important. Doesn't all this, particularly the events of this week, doesn't it collect collapse time as well, um, Abby? For many Jews, secular Jews even, uh, mm -hmm. who don't have a strong feeling of their Jewishness, the events of this week collapsed history and what Hamas did when they uh, invaded Israel was very much like a pogrom. Yes. So conventional notions of time go away sometimes, don't they? And this is exactly what's happened this week. And of course, from a Palestinian or a Gazan point of view, uh, there's a similar kind of narrative on, on many different levels. Well, I, I agree. Um, what's interesting, and I would actually expand on that, I think it both collapses time and expands time almost infinitely. I mean, I've heard um, interviews with people who have survived some of the attacks of the past week, and they've been in these shelters, for example, for a day, two days, without electricity. They don't even know how long it's been, and it feels like an infinity to them because they actually are caught in a moment when their life is at stake and they have no way of assessing what is going to happen. They try to imagine a future and it can be a dreadful future or a happy future, but they have no control over the outcome. And that makes time really expand very, very long. Um, but it also, you're right, it also collapses time in that the collective memories of a Jewish community, secular or not, um, it carries with it stories about the exodus, about slavery, and about, of course, the Holocaust. And that memory is passed on in every family. It goes on in generations. And this is true of Armenians. And the, the animus that is behind Hamas and many Palestinians, although I don't want to confuse the, um, a lot of Palestinians with Hamas, that sense of hatred um, and need for vengeance and destruction, that also stems from this collective memory which has been passed on. And it's another chapter in the same story. These men that have the same ambitions as their fathers or grandfathers or families. They want to avenge themselves. They want to destroy the state of Israel. I'm speaking with Abby Smith. Rumsey, the author of a, a very timely book, Memory Edited. Um, is there an argument in the book about what we should and shouldn't remember? What are you trying to say in this new book, Abby? Uh, what I'm trying to say is that we need to be wary that when there is a departure from reality, and you know, defining reality is a sort of complicated issue, but once a segment of the population or the whole population takes it for just accepts um, stories, um, alternate facts that in fact, that don't map to the real world. When they depart from reality, then it becomes a very dangerous thing. We lose our sense of responsibility to each other and um, a sense of community because in fact, our, our identity is robbed from us. Um, so, I, I pegged the story in my experience living in the Soviet Union in the 1980s when I, um, I lived with a roommate who didn't believe that in the United States butter was available in markets. And when I told her that it was, she accused me of lying. 
and got really angry at me. And um, really, I think I had just proved to her everything she had heard about capitalists. And what really struck me about that was that the regime had so much control over what their population knew that it really controlled their sense of reality and they also controlled what they thought was possible in the world and what was not possible for them and for others. So this woman did not believe that it was possible for a country, especially America, to have butter in markets all the time. It was simply inconceivable to her. On the other hand, when I think about this woman and um, what happened to her, I, I don't know where she is. Um, what happened in the 1990s when a lot of the facts about the Soviet regime were revealed and people who had lived during the regime had a very hard time and had this identity of Soviet citizens kind of lost that when it turned out that the historical record, the history books that they had been taught actually skewed the facts um, and erased people altogether from history and they just couldn't compute. That wasn't who they were. Their own personal past was part of this collective past of the Soviet Union. And you can see that in the 1990s, Russia was groping for some kind of a new identity. And regrettably, because they had a hard time facing those facts, and I understand why, um, they um, fell prey to a man, um, an authoritarian figure, who started to rebuild the image of Russia as a great empire. And here I'm talking about Putin. This was not the case necessarily thoroughly in Germany, in East Germany, when it be was reunited with the West. Um, and um, they, in, in East Germany, they were told as communists that it was the West Germans who were the Nazis and that they had, after the war, um, found homes for Nazis and most Western West German politicians were ex-Nazis. I don't know how much that's true, but, um, and certainly the Western Germany had a lot of Nazis um, in, in small government positions. But when they were suddenly united with West Germany and became one, the, the excavation of their memories, you know, of the past that they had been taught was a, was a very difficult thing for them. Just as the time that West Germany was trying to grapple with its own history of, um, of the war and what it had done to wipe out not just Jews, that was a spectacularly successful, unfortunately, but also Roma and um, people who were um, disabled and homosexuals, Catholic priests. So you can see that when you, when the collective memory is full of lies or false memory, shall we say, when those false memories are exposed to be false, then really there's a kind of collapse of a person's sense of certainty. And at a certain age, that trauma never really leaves and they have a hard time rebuilding their lives again. Abby, you compared and contrasted Germany, which was defeated, of course, in the Second World War and Russia. Where does America fit in here in terms of false memories? It seems as if America is a country that struggles also to come to terms with its own past. We just did a show on Abraham Lincoln uh, and the failure of reconstruction and America's poor memory for its past is America, do you think, um, more like Germany after the Second World War or Russia after the collapse of communism when it comes to coming to terms with its own history? Well, I will say that the thing that is most notable, this is a preface to what I'm going to say, is that we are fighting about the past, about our own past. 
And as long as we fight about it and argue about it, then in fact, we're just doing democracy. We're going back and trying to find the truth. Um, so we have people who, now that we're in this very confused time, I think, uh, you know, after the Cold War ended, after we so-called won it, we lost the peace and we really couldn't, we've retreated from being a world power that is the policeman of the world. Um, and um, and you can see there's a really strong reaction to this because of the economic, because the economic pie in the United States since the war has grown and now it's shrinking and it's caused a lot of um, problems with our um, in a, um, making one country out of many diverse people. So you see, on the one hand, some people are arguing in history curriculums, for example, in schools, in textbooks, that the nation, that as Americans, we began in 1776 and our foundations are in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And we are heroes in history. We are, we are the great example and the great experiment, we call ourselves, in self-governance. And there are people now saying, these, you, you, that history leaves me out. There's a big movement in history and um, cultural identity politics about where's my story? Again, I would fault the word story, but where is my history? It's not in my textbooks and it's not in the archives. So we don't, so there's a big movement in American history and elsewhere to sort of excavate the past before that, before 1776. And also to, I think in my mind, mistakenly um, do this through a sense of presentism like we can actually take um, Lincoln or let's say um, Jefferson and say, well, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, but he was a slave owner. And so it's hard to figure out where we stand with that morally, but there are people who want to, again, groping for certainty, want to be certain and make the certainty say that, well, you know, he was a bad man. He held slaves and what he did was illegitimate. And others who say, wait, he was the one who founded um you know who wrote the document, the Declaration of Independence. So I think um, I think there the country is at, at the present moment. It's kind of a it's unfortunately posed as an either or. Either we're this or we're that, and that's the battle because um, we're both. I mean, we're demonstrably both. But the battle isn't really about the future. It's really about the future. It's, it's not about the past. It's about the future. So. Who is it who gets to define what the country is and who is the, um, going to prevail? It defines who we will be in the future. So most of the book in the book, I talk about the, the damage done or this distortion of memory, not because it's a bad thing that we don't really understand all of our history or we've lost facts, but the way it's being used politically as um, in the arsenal of the future, who controls the future, and who is our real identity. We are speaking with Abby Smith-Rumsey, the author of Memory Edited, Taking Liberties with History. And as it happens, our sponsor of the show is also called Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, which I'm sure Abby is familiar with. Indeed. Uh, I want to thank them for supporting our show. We're going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with Abby to talk about excavating the past and the future. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberty's it's not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberty's is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And libertiesjournal.com if you want to subscribe. We are speaking with Abby Smith-Rumsey, the author of Memory Edited, Taking Liberties with History. But not bad liberties, good liberties. Uh, you're also in the book, Abby, a historian. You, you look back at many figures in history, Dostoevsky, for example, to learn not so much about the past, but about the future. What can we learn? by taking liberties with history? Well, um, a great um, philosopher, a Polish philosopher, Leszew Kolakowski said, you know, we, we study history, not because history teaches us lessons, I don't believe it does, but to know who we are. And I think the, the seriousness with which we face facts, good, bad, and ugly about the past is very important for us as we grow as moral beings, you know, the moral foundations of what we deem to be good or bad, um, the facts or fake facts, and what facts we leave out, what facts we embrace, how we make sense of the past. It's, a, it's how we th can project ourselves into the future. So Americans think um, a lot about the future. They're very forward um, focused, and sometimes they're surprised um, because they don't know very much about where some of the things that we live through um, have come from. I remember um, when 9-11 uh, struck or 2008 with the financial crisis, things that we, that many experts said was going to happen was a possibility. There were a lot of people who anticipated that, that you know, we would be under attack from, or attacked by um, some Islamist groups. And anyone could see that the financial crisis of 2008 was coming, that we were on a road that was untenable. But somehow Americans, um, they see that, they look in the mirror and they see something very different than most people. They, they're very certain about their own, our sense, that we are a model of progress uh, and that, um, and that, so that we're surprised when, for example, we could elect a black president and then elect Trump. And people have too often said, I've heard them say that, th that we're going backwards. And I just say that there's no such thing as going backwards in history. It's always going forward. That these things are evidences of patterns of conflicts that we have to live with all the time. We're never going to get rid of racism in this country once and for all, not certainly by electing somebody. And we're certainly not going to get um, the country united and moving forward if we deem that everyone who disagrees with us is not just a fellow citizen, but simply an enemy. And unfortunately, there's a leader, uh, a populist leader, Trump, who, sim who wants to inflame this sense that it's us against them. We can't do that in this country. And the future is something that is decided in many ways by how we bring up our children, what values we give them, what stories we tell, what histories we give them about where they come from, and also what it means to be a citizen in this country and what it demands of us, what freedom demands of us. It involves a lot of responsibility. And I think that, that, that 
history informs who we are and gives us, as I said with this woman in Leningrad, it gives us a sense of what is possible in the world, what um, and what is not possible. And I, the past couple of decades, especially after the civil rights movement, when things seem to um, get worse, or at least not get better without effort, one of the things that's so powerful about this moment is that by um, African Americans and other ethnic groups excavating their own past to know who they are, that is gaining access to these facts that may that may have been um, little noted at the time, I mean, time, but lost to history, it gives them a better sense of where they fit in the country, what they can claim, and um, this, the um, the rights that they can claim and live uh, up to. And so I'm. I mean, I'm very optimistic about this moment. I think it's very difficult, um, but I think it is a pivot moment in our history. And I think that realizing where we are in the world, that we can't actually afford to be everywhere in in the world as the world's policeman and arms dealer, basically, arms provider, um, is a very um, sobering moment for us. You know, Andrew, I've just been thinking about the fact that we've been sending so much money and arms to Ukraine, so much so that, you know, the, the Pentagon has said that some of the weapons they have and some of the arsenals are getting depleted. And now we're going to be giving much more to Israel. And I wonder just how sustainable that is and how, thinking about the future, we plan for s stepping back from this or finding coalitions, other people that can provide this kind of support, because it's just, it's, there are too many problems in this country now for us to neglect um, the kinds of, um, uh, the way we meet and build the f workforce for the present and the future. You don't sound cheerful, Abby. Maybe you are. <laughs> Maybe when I excavate, you've, you've spoken about excavation. If I excavated Abby Smith Ramsey, I would find a an optimistic pearl at the heart of, of, of the endeavor. Um, it's interesting you, you talk about America and history. Speaking of liberties and taking liberties, uh, Leon Weaseltier, the editor of Liberties, was on the show recently. He had an interesting piece in Liberties on America as a teleological nation, as only being able to think of the end rather than beginning and always believing in the idea of change. Do you agree with Leon? Yes, you think absolutely. That this notion, this almost religious notion of teleology, needs to be challenged both on a social and national and also an individual basis that we don't really change, that nothing ever really changes. Well, I think that things change, um, but you know, not in the profound way that teleology, um, um, contradicting teleology would be. I mean, teleology is sort of um, the belief that we are working towards some great ends and that in the best of circumstances, we should be helping to accelerate that, that getting to the end. And we call that progress. You know, different people have different ideas about what progress is and what the end is. And that's one of the sources of the conflict in our country now. But I think we need to be a lot more humble than we are. We are not, um, uh, we're not a nation that always sets an example um, that that other people should follow. We don't really look assess ourselves closely about what we have done abroad um, in the wars that we have 
started in the past couple of decades, in the past two decades. I don't think that it's possible. I don't know. I could have an interesting conversation with Leon, but I don't think it's possible that that sense of some great end, um, which is so ingrained in us because we were founded by the Puritans. We, I mean, we're not aware of this because we're such a secular nation now, but it is essentially a profoundly religious idea. Uh, and that's part of the confusion we have. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't think that the country will ever purge itself of that, but I think we can be a lot more humble about about the work that we need to do to accomplish progress. So at one point, I when I say that, you know, America is too teleological, I think that right now we have this idea, particularly on the left, that, you know, history is like the moving sidewalk, that we just step on it, we just keep moving forward. And yes, you know, we can take our luggage and we can walk fast down one side, or we can just stand there and do nothing but but stand there and still move forward. And that's what I think is endangering democracy is the fact that lots of us, frankly, are free riders on democracy. Some of us, in fact, don't even feel the obligation to vote in any election. And that's really a bad thing that's taking advantage of this idea that things will go forward and progress with us or without us. Now we've got to pay to get on that moving staircase. Uh, finally, Abby Smith-Rumsey, the author of Memory Edited, um... The one word you leave out of this is forgetting, memory and forgetting. Perhaps you might suggest one thing we need to remember that we haven't and one thing that we perhaps should forget. Well, one thing we should remember is that, um, is that the same sense of anxiety and confusion about the present moment was always there with past generations. We don't know how this moment is going to turn out. And everybody who came before us were living moments like that where we didn't, they didn't know how things were going to turn out. I think that will help people understand this idea that history doesn't turn out the way it's supposed to. I mean, everyone thinks, lots of people think, well, it happened that way, so it had to. No, we, some things are a matter of chance and contingency, but we have to remember that often it's the individual and collective decisions that people make that determine how things turn out. The one thing I think that we should forget is, mm, I think we should do our best to forget that, what, what can I say? That things in the past and things in the present, um, we should forget them if they lead us to think that, that things stick around forever and the past, the sins of the past can never be forgiven. They are in the past and we should forget about them. In other words, we should take liberties with history. Yes, we have to.